Guys, 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 we are back with episode number 35. How are you? How is everyone? I feel like when I speak to my friends, everybody goes up and then they go down. And it can go on like an hour to hour basis during lockdown. I think it's a very much a weird time. So trying to give you some consistency, some normalcy in this weird time. We're back this week with episode number 35, part of the debate series where Judah and I, friend of the pod, are chatting about surveillance. And this was really interesting. So if you're new to the debate series in the podcast, I started hosting these kinds of dinner debates last year. And around this time last year, we had a dinner debate where we go to a pub in Farringdon, about 10 of us. Everybody would go do some research on a topic and then we'd come and we'd debate. And so this time last year, we actually did one on surveillance. So it's been really interesting to kind of see some of the progressions, especially during COVID, uh, because one of the biggest things that I found doing research on surveillance right now was that a lot of governments are kind of using COVID to bypass some privacy laws. So that's one of the things we talk about in this episode. We also talk about the new technological developments which are being used to collect data on citizens while the law is often playing catch up and the moral debate around that. We talk about what happens when autocratic governments enforce mass surveillance, especially the negative effects that that can have on ethnic minorities and some predictions of tech advancements within the space. So I hope you enjoy this pod. If you do, share it with your friends and yeah. I would love to know your thoughts, so hit me up on Instagram at Progress Pure. Okay, that Are we is, on? that's recording. Cool. That is recording. Let me just roll up my pants okay. and sit down. Sort this out. All right, we are back ladies and gents, to another episode of the Progress Pure podcast. (laughs) Thank you for having me on again, Molly. It's always a pleasure. Judah, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Um, And now, this week, we're actually, uh, we got a couple bevs flowing. Yeah, always better. I like it when you uh, get me drunk before you get me to embarrass myself on these podcasts, so very appreciated. That's always the aim. I want you unconscious of any mistakes that you're making. That's so creepy. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I thought you were just going to stop at unconscious. I was like, wow, tech. I know, I know. Not in this climate, really. I kind of went with it. (laughs) So this episode, we are back with... Do I use different chairs this time? I feel like I'm using different chairs. I'm going to sit like this. That's better. Okay, cool. Um, We're back with surveillance cctv but before we get kind of like into all of that and everything how are you oh <laughs> <laughs> i'm never nice to you like never. this <laughs> uh, yeah i'm good you know it feels like groundhog day and i was actually like when i'm working i've got to make small talk with the clients that i'm working with and it was officially us groundhog yeah. day like three days ago i think maybe you even told me that so the amount of times i brought that up at the beginning of the call like did you know it's Groundhog Day? It yeah. feels like it's going on and on and on. Yeah. So I'm a little bit over it. Like I'm kind of ready for everything to open back up. But, you know, yeah. can't complain. Got you know, I only knew, found out what ground. I didn't know Groundhog Day was actually a thing until recently when I watched the movie. It's a good movie, right? It is a good movie. Very, I, like, meaningful. Don't know if I would watch it again, like, right now. I no. think it'd be a little bit too much, a bit too close to the bone. It's also one of those films that you know it's a good film, but it's co- quite depressing. 
Yeah. Like, in it's a like sense... You've got to be in a mood for those kinds of movies where it's like you get taken on this emotional journey. Yeah. You come away feeling like, am I a better person, but also pretty emotionally drained. Yeah. That's that kind of film. Yeah, and also films from that time, I don't know when it was filmed, but you know it kind of has that, like, old film look to it. Feels like 80s, I want to say. Like, yeah. yeah. Always makes me feel a bit depressed. Yeah. Like don't the, know the, why. the 90s was, like, quite a gritty, exciting time, I yeah. feel like. The 80s was, like... Just waiting for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also, I don't know, all those actors when they're super young, it just, I don't know, we're selling this off to a bit of a miserable note, but hmm. good film. It is a good, yeah, it is a good film. Good film. Maybe I will watch it. But surveillance is what we're here to talk about, right? So we're here, we're chatting about surveillance, CCTV, and the reason why I wanted to do this episode is because, like, we did uh, a actual dinner debate on surveillance and CCTV, I remember. Hmm. And, you know, it was actually February last year. That's so weird because yeah. I do remember it and it's like crazy how like how time's flown since then. I know. It's, it's such a different world we're in so now. It's so weird. But so we did surveillance and CCTV and I remember it being particularly interesting and it was one of those debates that really split the room in terms of people being for surveillance. Uh, you've got a squeaky chair, don't you? I know. Am I going to be in trouble if I keep moving around? No, you're all right. You're right. Um, <laughs> people who were for kind of surveillance. And when I say surveillance, I think that it's good to distinguish like there is, um, you know, government surveillance and then like private uh, surveillance that are from kind of like private companies and like privately funded rather than national hmm. surveillance. Well, do you remember there was the whole, um, was it the, uh, I want to I get this right because there's so many acronyms in the US, but I think it was the NSA. A national security agency that came out during the Obama administration that they'd been wiretapping everyone and there was this you know huge thing about it but then all they're doing is what these big companies like Facebook and Twitter have been doing which we you know we volunteer our information for so it's that's the whole thing I'm sure we'll get into that but, yeah 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 it's an interesting one though like with Facebook and stuff because you do technically sign up to mm. I, I think it's one of those things if you don't read the terms and conditions you don't know what you're signing up to but you do technically sign up to um to that although except when there are like data breaches like for yeah. example with cambridge analytica well there was a really good documentary which i think was called thank you for reading the terms and conditions or something like oh, that yeah yeah i can't remember what it was it was on netflix and it was about just that it was that some coder or somebody had put deep in the terms and conditions he's like you know 50 60 70 pages of terms and conditions that we're all obviously going to read before we sign up for obviously. anything He'd put a line, which was something like, and thank you for agreeing to sell your soul over to this company. Oh, I think I heard about that? this. Yeah. So, and this, this is the thing, right, is that, yeah, Facebook, these Twitter, these companies that we're giving a lot of our information and trust to, well, look, you know, we are signing up. Yeah. We are clicking that we've read and agree to the terms and conditions. But, you know, nobody really does that. So even if it's a legal argument that, well, you've agreed and you've declared that you've seen it you know, we're still giving a lot of trust to these companies and it's been proven time and time again that they are spying on us and using our information and using our attention against us. So. Yeah, I think it's really important though when to think about when people say, like how you just said, they are spying on us. It's such a term that people use and throw away, especially in terms of Facebook and social media and services and like the government. And I think it's actually really important to unpack like what that specifically means because mm -hmm. with, and I know we're kind of delving into a very specific thing before we talk about surveillance more generally and the themes that I definitely do want to talk about in this podcast. But I particularly thought about that when I was looking at Siri and Alexa and a lot of my friends say, and I would say, you know, they spy on you, like mm. they're listening to you the whole time, but like, what does that mean? Yeah. And it's actually really interesting um, when I was doing research on that. So if you say something that 
for example, triggers Siri, like a zip, undoing a zip could trigger Siri. Yeah. Then Siri is listening to you and essentially recording you and can record you, I think, up to six months until you turn it off. That's so intense. And that that data or that um, that audio file, whatever, can be stored for up to two years. I, this mm. is from what I read. It could This could be an odd source or whatever. Up to two years until it's deleted. Um, and even though apparently com- companies can't actively go and like um, listen to those audio files or access them, Sometimes uh, Amazon will, they, they take snippets of those audio files and they send it to people, you know, who are specifically working within this department to check that like, did they, did Siri respond correctly to whatever that person was saying? Yeah. And if often, well not often, but if sometimes it has picked up on very private things like business deals or like sex or... But then is that going to be used? Like, okay, so it's one of those things that in the same way that if a police officer goes into somebody's house without a warrant and finds something illegal, that can't be used against them because the way that that information was obtained was unlawful. Yeah. I think, is it the same with uh, these companies where if they uncover something private or they uncover something you know, embarrassing, it can't be used or it can't be held against the people because... And again, I think that's something that we can get into, but before we do, it'd be good for you to just give me a bit of an overview of like, what the definitions are, help me understand a little bit like the direction you want to go. Because yeah. I think it's such a broad topic and you've already said there's like, you know, COVID, for example, where surveillance has been stepped up significantly and then you've got, you know, companies that are doing it, you've got like government surveillance. So can you start by talking me through a little bit around like what you found are the main types? Yeah, totally. So the ki- the things which I found particularly interesting that I think would be really cool points for us to talk about in this episode is COVID and surveillance. So mm-hmm. there's been a big rise of some states taking advantage of COVID in a way to expand their surveillance um, in the countries that they're in or on people in terms of like collecting biometric information and kind of using COVID sometimes as an excuse mm. um, and, you know, sometimes legitimately, but then there's been a big kind of gray area of like, what are the human rights around collecting personal information of people, even in terms of like health, whether they've tested negatively or positively, like where is that stored? Who uses that information? Mm. Um, which is something I want to look into. Then this is something which you mentioned to me earlier where you have private versus public and government surveillance and personal privacy versus national security. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you laughing? Okay, so you've got to give people the content. So um, my brother did... I just want to say I did write this and then Ruben... Okay, sure. So um, so Ruben, big up to you if you're, uh, if you're listening. So my brother did his, uh, his master's on uh, AI and AI ethics. And one of the things that he was talking to us about before to help us prepare is that the uh, the kind of the debate around surveillance is on the one hand, you've got national security and then on the other hand, you've got individual privacy. And he I was speaking to him without knowing Molly had chatted to him on the walk here as well. <laughs> and I was like, give me the nice snippets. Give me the things to make me sound smart because it's, you know, it's all a, it's all a lie, really. <laughs> um, and then I came in and I was like, so Molly, this is what I think. And he says, oh, you've been speaking to Ruben, haven't you? So uh, yeah. So basically everything that we're going to be saying has just come from him. So uh, yeah, yeah, cheers, Ruben. Ruben. Thank you very much. Um, and then the third one, I'm literally just drinking out of peer pressure because, you know, sometimes when you cheers and you don't drink and people are like, oh, that means. It's exactly the same as, you know, when like you go to high five somebody, no matter how much you hate them, like they are going to like. 
it's instinctive. Isn't <laughs> yeah, it? I have like, to. Yeah, yeah. Literally, you just can't all... leave. You can't, you can't leave me hanging on. Uh... No, all mental dialogue just dropped as soon as they saw a high five. Yeah. I was like, dog to a bone, like must. Um, so the third one. The is... third one is democracies versus autocracies. Is that how you call yeah, it? Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, cool. So, I, um, so democracies versus autocracies, and how typically I found kind of on the whole that whether you're a democratic state or an autocratic state, it actually doesn't matter that much in terms of how you use. Uh, I mean, it does to a certain extent, but also that there isn't a big difference between uh, liberal countries and cultures and governments and dem um, auto autocratic and um, like ones that are typically more repressive. Like yeah. some, they equally can be quite, uh, what's the right word? Like they can be- Sinister? Like, uh, no, more like careless or they're just not that good at, at dealing and processing, handling data and like personal information. Okay. okay. It doesn't really matter the kind of like where, like where you're at yeah. to a certain extent. Well, well, let's start with COVID because I think that's the one that's probably most relevant. And yeah. this is something that I've really thought about over the last 10, 11 months. And I guess my opinion of what is and isn't good is constantly changing. Like the longer that we're in this type of situation, and it seems like they keep kicking the can down the road in terms of when everything is going to go back to normal. Because for me, on the one hand, like my original thought was, is this an opportunity for governments around the world to seize more power and to seize more control over the people that they're governing? Because you've got this unprecedented, word of 2020, um, you've got this unprecedented opportunity to basically get people to register themselves, to be able to track them. And it's a pretty legitimate excuse, which is we're trying to contain something. We need to understand exactly where people are, how they're moving about, who they're interacting with. And my fear was if you allow people to have that kind of insight into our lives, once the pandemic's over, it's very difficult to take those mechanisms away. Mm -hmm. Like it's very easy, so it's very easy. It's easier to make laws than it is to abolish them. Or once there's precedent for something, um, it's easy to make the case to use it again. Mm -hmm. And my fear at the time was, well, if we allow governments to monitor our movement so closely, and if we, you know, have to do these things like health passports, or we have to, you know, scan QR codes to show where we are, mm -hmm. then is that something that is just gonna, you know, gonna become embedded in how we interact with people and what we accept as, you know, okay in society? Mm. Now, the flip side of that is when you look at other countries that maybe have more, you know, more of a history of, um, I guess, surveillance or, you know, more of a culture of acceptance around that. So places like China, South yeah. Korea, Japan, the places that fixed COVID quicker or the places that got back to normalcy way before we did, um, are, are places where everybody locked down, everybody used those codes, um, and it's places where the government has had more of a hand around the activities of its population. So you're saying the places that have had higher surveillance are the places that have had a better handle on COVID? I think so. I think that's that's what it seems to me. And then it's a question of, well... I don't know if that's true. I mean, I'm sure that it was like South Korea was the example that yeah. everybody looks at, which is a country where they did a complete shutdown. They did like a, what, two, three, four week lockdown, uh -huh. stopped everything. Yeah. They really severely monitored it and policed it. And then people had to use these, you know, personal tracking devices to be able to go from place to place. Yeah. And, you know, that is surveillance. It's looking at where are people, how are they moving about? Mm -hmm. And I find that in, um, intrusive, mm. but it definitely did work. I think that's the challenge. I think maybe in that case, and uh, I, to be honest, my numbers and awareness and knowledge of 
where where countries are at in terms of covid is not excellent at all like it's not mm. good at all so you could have a point there that there is a correlation to be honest like the research that i've done the um the reading that i found it was saying that countries who typically have a uh, a less better handle this isn't exactly correlated but like countries that have a best uh, a less better handle and processing of like biometric information um are countries that also had a higher uh, adoption of surveillance during this time. And those countries tended to be ones that actually aren't dealing with COVID very well. So for example, China, I don't know how they're dealing with COVID now, they're the worst, but then they were also followed by like Brazil, Costa Rica. Um, let me see. Brazil, Costa Rica, obviously this is zoomed in like way too much. One sec. This is really helping me out, isn't it? Let me drag this across. I mean, look, you know, while you're searching for that one. Here we go. Sorry. Um, five countries that are most heavily surveilled. You've got China, number one, USA, number two, India, Brazil, Indonesia. And I know, like, USA has really bad numbers. Um, Brazil, I think, is going through, is one of the countries that is being affected the worst. So I'm not trying to totally bash your point, mate. But, but bash, bashing bash, your bash, point. Bash, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, in in terms of what you were saying of like covid and that like the countries are definitely taking advantage of covid in places where they can like especially china in what way can you give me some examples yeah so actually one of the things that maybe it will be good to start kick this off about talking about is for example um this is what i found information from a website called biometric update they said there's a rise in biometric data collection, increased acceptance and growing surveillance amid the pandemic, despite the lack of privacy legislation. And I think that's also a really important thing to know. So laws, typically it's estimated that the law is at least five years behind developing um, behind developing a technology, which is, that's kind of typically, that's from somebody called Julia Griffith from Suffolk Education. And so I think as well, when you apply that with COVID and how quickly everything is so developing. Way accelerated, right? Exactly. And also just extremely relevant and something to bear in mind. Um, the website or biometric update said the worst scoring countries for biometric data collection and handling practices have seen the highest increase in COVID related biometric collection measure measures. For example, drone surveillance in China for fever detection and contactless pay payments in the US. Research firm Comparatech has released the results from its latest study on global biometrics gathering and handling. That's basically where this information comes from. They said that China ranked the worst in biometric, biometric data collection and data handling due to its extensive national biometric database that now also includes DNA, public facial recognition cameras and lack of workplace data protection. Costa Rica is second, Iran is third, um, where security forces have full access to data stored in the National Biometric Database. Anyway, the reason why I think it is particularly interesting is because it seems like, and it's not a shocker, like when you look back in history, in times when the world has been going through a crisis, like that's when governments tend to go, we're in an emergency, we're going to take control, we're going to kind of bypass the laws and looking at human rights um, because this is like a national state of emergency. And it's just very interesting that countries that typically aren't very good at processing the data and also ones that aren't very developed or the countries that don't really have a lot of political rights to its people, for example, Iran, whereas like one of the worst countries um, for free speech and especially freedom of speech towards the press is one of the countries that's saying, oh, is um, taking advantage of surveilling the people. So you're saying that it's not actually something that's got a correlation with 
being better so the more surveillance the easier it is for them to contain covid or to handle challenges like outside of covid but the fact that um you know it's these countries the ones that are typically the worst in terms of human rights are the ones that are most heavily surveying their um, their citizens and they're using this as an excuse to be able to do that. Yeah, and I mean, there are, of course, exceptions to that. For, so, for example, the USA, um, they share, share fourth, fourth place um, in terms of being one of the worst countries with dealing and processing with biometric data, blah, blah, blah. Uh, fourth place along with Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bangladesh, the Philippines and Uganda. That's partly because the USA, which is, this is so crazy. The USA has pretty much no federal law for protection of um, like data in terms of privacy. How, how do you mean? So like what, what, what are they able to do then? So... To be honest, I don't necessarily know. The research that I've done, they say that, for example, you know the UK has mm. GDPR standards, and yeah. that came from, um, in 2016, a lot with the EU. The EU came forward, I think it was the European Parliament, that said, like, we're going to have basic principles for protection of companies who are processing data. Yeah. Um, even when the UK left the European Union uh, for Brexit, they still carried on those measures of standardised protection um, of people and their information. The only federal, the only acts that I'm kind of aware of on the federal state, they have something called like the Telecommunications Act, which I think was in 2017. And I think what that does is that if you make a phone call to someone, the phone companies, they can't go, oh, this is David Judah's phone number. He's a male. Like they can't connect private information okay, to it, you. Got it, got it. They have like a couple, but on a federal level, I don't know how it is state to state. They barely have any. Mm. So it's like shocking that the USA, which is obviously, you know, relatively quite a good like country to live in, in terms of free speech. Uh, I mean, I know a lot of people argue this, but like free, in comparison mm. to some of these other countries. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there isn't like a direct correlation. Okay, that's interesting. So I guess in that case, then that's even more of a reason to say surveillance is unnecessary or surveillance is something that we should be arguing against. Well, because the flip side of this, okay, so if you take the debate away from uh, coronavirus and you yeah. look at where is surveillance something that's positive, I think going back to what we said earlier about national security versus personal privacy, you know, when I think about surveillance and I'm thinking, well, I think it was a stat I read, which is, you know, four out of five um terrorist plots are foiled by you know the government listening in or hearing it on the phone or picking it up by looking at activity that's going on online and in a way i think look everybody wants to think that they have this privacy and that they're being left alone but people also don't want terrorism like that is i think a fairly unobject you know unobjectionable thing to say which mm -hmm. is that the world is definitely better when these plots are being foiled mm. so what's the balance between giving the government the right to be able to listen in and be able to monitor conversations that are being had over the phone mm -hmm. versus us saying, well, actually, you know, there is something creepy and sinister about this big brother state being able to listen to every word that we're saying. Yeah. And look, I think the argument that many people make is if you're not doing anything wrong, you have nothing to fear. But then, you know, that's easy for us to say in the UK, in a fairly liberal country where, you know, the, you know, let's be honest, the government is pretty stable, despite what some people may say. It's not uh, a malicious one and it's not against the people. Yeah. Again, you know, despite what some people might say. Um, take somewhere like Russia, where there's, you know, if you're seen as, um, you know, objecting to the government, you're a political, you know, dissident. You know, mm -hmm. there's all of these challenges, the same as, uh, you know, what's going on in China or 
other parts of the world where if you're speaking out against the government or you're denouncing them, mm -hmm. then you're seen as an enemy of the state. Mm. And then it's like, well, is surveillance good in that respect? Well, probably not. And the question is who decides what is and isn't acceptable. Mm. Uh, it's kind of, kind of sim similar to the, free the freedom of speech thing that we were talking about uh, when I last came onto the show. And, uh, the show, I the love show. it. <laughs> Such a pod. I know. Um, but like, I guess that, I guess for me, that's the, that's the debate is absolutely. I see the value of having surveillance and being able to stop malicious people from, you know, enacting violence upon the countries that they're in at the same time. That's very much dependent on us putting a lot of faith in the people that are making these laws. Yeah, totally. That's a big argument for it that arguably it doesn't matter to a certain extent how developed and how invasive your surveillance is as long as it's overseen by people who you trust and how it depends on how good good whatever that means your government is and you're right like we are in a really fortunate position where um even though there is like i think the uk is one of the most heavily it's the most heavily surveilled capital city in europe and the most like surveilled place per land capita even though it doesn't have the most cctv cameras but we are fortunate so how does that work yeah i know it confused me as well so we have the most cameras, I think. We pass me my phone. My friend sent this to me. So China has fifty-four percent of the world of the world's um, surveillance cameras. I think it has about two hundred million. But Jesus, my friend sent me this saying, "Okay, so London has more CCTV per capita than any other city in the world." Um, and then it's got number of CCTV cameras per 1,000 people. London wow. apparently has 67.47, and then you've mm -hmm. got Changsha, which has 56.80. Mm -hmm. um, although I did read something that said, in the UK, there is one CCTV camera to every 13 people. In the US, there's one CCTV camera to every 4.6 people, and in China, one to every 4.1. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So what you're saying is, in terms of density, there is... Mm, there's less cameras in the uk but because it's a smaller area it's easier to you know more people are going to be seen or there's a lower population yeah so. yeah numbers confuse me mm -hmm. so um so but you're right like there is a line and it's crazy to see how far cctv has come so if we look a little bit about the history of it after world war ii that's when gchq which is like the uk's um i don't know surveillance like headquarters mm -hmm. um i guess you could say and like from the 70s i think that's when cctv cameras really kind of started taking off and in the 90s there was a big boom and it's just kind of a moral question of okay you have cctv cameras and then where is the limit because nowadays you have drones like so for example in baltimore in the states in 2016 to 2019 apparently they started like secretly uh releasing these drones to surveil the crime in baltimore and it was done by a private company and then they went public about it told people about it in april 2020 and then only this week actually have they decided like that's not cool we don't want to contribute to kind of orwellian uh like you know draconian spy like thing and, and their worries about people's privacy but then again like but if it does, if that does protect people from crime, then why wouldn't you do that? And then you have things like facial recognition cameras. And, but it goes back to kind of what your government is and, and how well, 
how democratic are they to a certain extent? But then again, like in Baltimore, part of the letdown of having drones is that they were finding that the cameras were, um, there were way more like black people who were being targeted mm. than white people. Um, and in like Notting Hill Carnival, I think that when they first release these kinds of different tech for surveillance, they're always going to be fucked up and like they're not going to work in the beginning because it, they're testing it. And Notting Hill Carnival, I think like a few years ago, they released facial recognition cameras, you know, which like detects people's faces, yeah. recognizes them and then like puts them into a system and will say, oh, we're looking for this criminal. And they did it. And this black kid, I think um, he was like, uh, arrested and not charged but they took him because they thought that he was another criminal basically what is the line well this is this is something that i'm so I went, when i was um visiting a friend of mine in amsterdam we went to this exhibition which was all about um kind of the relationship between people and technology and how fast it's evolving and at the end they had this thing on facial recognition and it was all about how the people that are basically creating this technology, they skew typically, you know, middle-aged white male. Um, the algorithms are biased because it's based on the prejudices that these people subconsciously bring when they're creating these technologies. So there was loads of things like, you know, like you say with um, people from African backgrounds, mm. a lot of the times they would mistake um, women for men. Yeah. You know, this technology is not made equal. And it dis, you know, it disadvantages people that don't come from the backgrounds of the people that are developing it. So again, that's a huge problem when we look at how this is applied in surveillance. Because if you have this technology which is unconsciously biased against a certain group of people, yeah, or it's not made in a way that it can be effectively used, yeah. Well, if you then start to use this surveillance technology to um, charge people with crimes or to hold people accountable for things that they've done it's a lot of mar you know room for error mm -hmm. um, and I just don't think it's reliable and you know again you can make the argument that if there's potential for it to go wrong then mm. it's something we have to take off the table completely well that's an interesting thing to say because that reminds me of the debate that we did about capital punishment saying if there is room for one person to be convicted and killed then surely you should take it completely off the table and I wonder if that same rule applies here because then again it's like to what extent because if they're testing something to really try and reduce crime um and it does you know like having cameras having a large number of cameras or um a heavily surveyed place does reduce crime because even if you're not caught on camera psychologically thinking i could be caught um obviously is gonna is going to reduce the crime but to what extent is it like, okay, if one person gets taken into custody, if they're not charged, then we can carry on with this kind of development on, on, of CCTV? Or is it that if one person is put in jail and charged and, you know, a year of their life is gone due to a problem or a misidentification with CCTV, we should scrap it? Do you think that? It's, it's a tough one because then the flip side is how many times has that technology stopped crimes from happening? And does the amount of times that it's had a positive impact outweigh the one or two times or, you know, however many times it is that it's got it wrong? Yeah. And again, I think it's such a difficult thing to discuss because, you know, then we're getting into, you know, numbers and we're getting into, well, how many how many right applications justifies one wrong one? Yeah, I know. And, you know, again, I, I don't know. I think that's an incredibly difficult thing for lawmakers to have to do. Yeah. And I guess the reassuring thing on the one hand is that technology is always getting better and more accurate 
But at the same time, it then goes back to what we were saying about the flip side, which is if you have these tools becoming more and more powerful, they're also more effective weapons that governments can use against people, um, you know, if they are trying to impose their will on people. And speaking of governments trying to impose their will or repress people to make them in line with what governments believe, I do want to talk about China because China, and I hope I don't pronounce this one wrong, the Uyghurs? The Uyghurs. The Uyghurs. Oh, gosh. Very yeah. good food. Do they have good food? They have very good food. Really? Have you been to China? Uh, I haven't been to China, but um, because there's been a lot of migration with a lot of people, uh, a lot of Uyghur people... Uh, fleeing. Yeah. So they've traveled across the world, you know, they've walked, um, you know, or traveled through Central Asia towards yeah. Europe, and there's a lot of places in London popping up. So, no way. Uh, yeah, worth checking out. I didn't know that. One okay. for when lockdown ends. I'd love to, I'd love to have some Uyghur food. So I actually, yeah, I want to talk some bit, I'll tell you some facts, then we can talk about it. So careful though, don't speak too badly about China because they could be listening. I don't care. Let me tell you a story before we, um, before we get into Fuck this. Fuck you, actually. China. I'm joking. <laughs> Go on. So, uh, so I had, uh, at uni, one of the uh, one of the courses I studied was Chinese economic history. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a professor. He was a guy called Felix. Yeah, fantastic guy. One of the authorities on Chinese economic history from eighteen hundred onwards. And every year there would be a number of students that would come to study abroad from China. And he was telling us a story, which is that at the end of one of the semesters, one of his Chinese students came up to him, and at the end of the thing said, "Listen, I want to be completely honest with you." Um, the Chinese government has asked me to write a report on you. I will be writing favorably because, you know, I can see there's nothing wrong and I think you're a great guy, blah, blah, blah. But he said, but listen, I want you to understand that this is it. And the reason for that is these are people, these are academics that are going into China, you know, with permits or whatever, you know, with the right visas and the right paperwork, and they're going into the archives. But what they're looking at is understanding the history of how the Communist Party came to be and that's very much a, you know, it's a very censored state. So there's a really fine line in terms of, you know, what they want people to be looking at, what they don't want people to be looking yeah. at. Um, you know, there's loads of books that are banned and there's a big black market for things that are written and snuck through through Hong Kong and yeah. stuff like that. But for me, that really hit home because you've got this guy on the other side of the world who is, you know, he is an authority on Chinese history, but, you know, the fact that the government is sending these people out and, you know, it's... It's ba- it is spying. It's taking, um, you know, taking students, giving them visas, but saying, listen, you know, just let us know what's being said about mm. us. And it's a bit creepy, isn't it? Really scary. And I wonder what the repercussions would be if he wrote a bad report. Like, do they send some, do they get one of their dudes to, like, does, is he not allowed back into China again? Is he I, killed? I, I don't, I really hope he wasn't killed. He was, <laughs> he was a really nice guy. I mean, he no, got listen, a good report, so. I don't, th- I don't think it'll be anything like that because look, there's very public critics of China mm. all over the world. But I think it would be, you know, I think it would be a case that it would be more difficult for him to get access to the archives. Right. Or maybe he wouldn't be given a visa next time he applied. Again, I'm speculating. Yeah. But I think what was more scary was the fact that, you know, the, these guys just, they had that reach. It's really scary. It's really scary. Okay, now let's take a look into some facts. So CNBC said that 770 million surveillance cameras around the world, there's going to be 1 billion of them in 2021. 54% of them are in China. Um, now let's scroll down to specifically about China. So, um, first of all, you have sense time before we go into the Uyghurs, uh, you have sense time in China. I don't know if this is throughout all of China, but so essentially from what I, I want to make sure I don't get anything wrong, but like from what I read and from what I understood, everyone, in, they're not yet everyone in China, but they're working towards the 
a place where every single person in China has a kind of online information thing where it tracks all of their info in terms of like biometric information their address um, and even more personal things and they're all dictated by how good of a citizen they are based on a color oh that's so like that black mirror episode you remember the one where they all have these like five star ratings yeah do you remember that and it's crazy because I have heard about this. Yeah. It's exactly like, um, it sounds like the Chinese government has seen this episode and thought, hey, that's a good idea. <laughs> that's a good project. And it's like, and it's really creepy because then what they're doing is they're basically saying, well, we want everybody to, you know, behave themselves, quote unquote. Yeah. So let's allow people to rate each other. You're basically turning people into informants against each other. And it sounds very much like, you know, communist russia yeah or you know it's worse it sounds kind of worse it's like basically oh if you've got a personal grudge against somebody inform against them or give them a low rating that what, kind of thing i don't know how the dynamics between if you want to report someone like that sounds more like north korea to me where it's like okay you can report a neighbor and they encourage each other to spy on each other maybe that is the same here but what i've understood is that it really is quite advanced and high tech so they were testing it out in specific cities and the cities that they were let's say you went out to the shop and you bought like a bottle of alcohol and that was like a recurring thing for you your um that would be tracked and so your points or whatever your thing is on your online system that the government have access to and have created would decrease and if you have too low of points you can't it literally disables you from be living your life so if you want to buy train tickets to leave the place that you're in you can't because it can essentially put you under not house arrest, but it can limit you from traveling. You can't stay in certain hotels. You, and if you have bad points, then your kids might not be able to go to certain schools. Wow. Um, so they really try and force you to be a quote unquote good citizen. So it's like Uberizing everything, isn't it? Where it's like, you know, if you get a bad rating, if you throw up in a cab once, like that's it, game yeah, over. That's it, you can't redeem yourself. No. Um, okay, now I want, yeah, there are some, this was really fucked up, I thought this was horrible. So uh, even in the countryside, if, even if in the countryside, if you don't, if you're not technolo- technological, technologically advanced and you don't use like credit cards, you don't have even phones, for example, they will still send officials to the countryside to take photos of people in the country, of their faces at all different angles, so that they have their face profile stored and in exchange give them like cookware, give them pots and pans that they need to cook in order to get that information from them. Fucked up. Now, let's talk a little bit more about the... That's so funny. You can just see any notes. Fucked up. (laughs) About the Uyghurs. So I've written here Uyghurs. um... So yeah, because I I kind of, I know a little bit about this, but will you just give me like a very quick history lesson of what's going on? Yeah, it's a lot of pressure, but absolutely. Okay, so if you don't know who the Uyghurs are, the Uyghurs are the people whom old Russian travellers called Sart, a name they used for sedentary for sedentary, Turkish-speaking Central Asians in general, while Western travellers called them Turkey in recognition of their language. Their geographic distribution is in China, Xinjiang, don't know if I pronounced that right, Um, and their, yeah, autonomous regions are in Xinjiang. Um, So that is basically what Wikipedia says about them. Now, they are completely targeted by the Chinese um, and seen as... uh, Muslim Chinese people, right? I think they're... Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Muslim Chinese people. And they're seen as completely racially and ethnically inferior. And so the Chinese government are doing a number of things because I think from like 2009, although don't quote me on that, 
they started kind of protesting against the Chinese government um, for potentially being treated unfairly, although again, I don't know, that it's basically been rooted um, in the last kind of 10 years, there's been tensions between the two, and now it's really coming to a head, so if you turn on the news, it's everywhere, and some things that I found again, uh, people are saying that essentially since like the Third Reich, this is the biggest concentration camps that have been created since then, so I think there are a million Uyghurs right now who are in technically what people are calling is like a camp and um, the Chinese government I think are calling them like schools so they're saying that oh we're like culturally appropriating them to become more Chinese um, when actually they're really performing like horrible things that are quite uh, the echo things that they did in the Holocaust so in terms of CCTV and surveillance of when it can go horribly wrong I want to read some of these out so there are AI, artificial intelligence powered sensors, they lurk everywhere, including in Uyghurs' purses and pants pockets. According to the anthropolo anthropologist Darren Byler, some Uyghurs buried their mobile phones containing Islamic materials or even froze their data cards into dumplings for safekeeping. When Xi's campaign, um, who I think is the president of China, mm -hmm. um, campaign of cultural erasure reached full tilt but police have since forced them to install nanny apps on their new phones so apps is another way that you can survey surveil people the apps use algorithms to hunt for ideological viruses day and night they can scan chat logs for quran verses and look for arabic script in memes and other image files purchasing prayer rugs online storing digital copies of muslim books and downloading sermons uh, from a favorite imam are all risky activities if a Uyghur were to use WeChat's payment system to make a donation to a mosque, authorities might take note. Staying off social media altogether is no solution because digital inactivity itself can raise suspicions. The police are required to know when Uyghurs deviate from any of their normal behavior patterns. The database wants to know if Uyghurs start leaving their home through the back door instead of the front. It wants to know if they spend less time talking to neighbors than they used to. Listen to this. Electricity use is monitored by an algorithm for unusual use, which could indicate an unregistered resident. Mm -hmm. So this is all from um, The Atlantic, by the way. And then it goes further, you know, like women are being sterilized. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just unbelievably disturbing. We are going to take a quick break to chat about how you could help Uyghur Muslims and the things that you can do to try and help them. So I got this information from a website called Amalia.com and it was written last year. And so a couple of the things that you can do is you can sign petitions, which I've put the link in the description. One of them asks politicians to condemn the violations of human rights going on in China against Uyghur Muslims. Or there is another one which calls on the International Olympic Committee to not allow China to host the 2020 Olympics without closing the intermittent camps. A couple of other things you can do is you can write to your local MP and political representatives and which is also I've put an Amnesty International link in the description and you can also donate. Apparently you can't donate directly, um, no aid can enter China and anyone within China can be detained by the authorities for having any contact outside of the border. However, you can help Uyghur refugees who have managed to flee to Turkey. And I've put a link of a humanitarian charity that is helping and using money that people are donating to help refugees. So if you do want to help, though, check out the description and you can help there. They record voices and swab DNA when they go um, 
for like to different checkpoints in the country. A lot of them aren't allowed to travel. Um, it's really like a terrifying thing. So this is a, a an example of when a government is enforcing or surveilling a people um, and is actually just stripping them of any human rights mm-hmm. um, and it's basically gone terribly wrong. See, that's exactly what we were saying. It's that absolutely you want to feel like your country is looking after your best interests and it's stopping bad things happening and stopping malicious individual actors from raining terror or whatever it is. But what happens when the government is the one that is you know, in the wrong and how can you police them? And do you want to give those kinds of rights over? And that's where the challenge is, is that, well, if that technology exists in the first place, there is always the potential for it to be abused. Mm-hmm. We saw, we've seen it in Germany, we've seen it in Russia, we're seeing it here in China. And it's, again, it's like, you would like to think that that would never happen in the UK, mm. but how can we be sure that that isn't going to be used? And even if we don't, it's not going to be to the same extent. And if it's not racially profiled or it's not based on religion, whatever it is, the fact is that our government still has just as much ability to, um, you know, to monitor us as China. You know, we've said that there's a lot of um, you know, security cameras, but it goes beyond that. It's looking at, well, you know, could the government get access to, you know, things like our spending patterns or our energy? Mm. It's all very privatized, but it could easily, you know, be regulated against. But this is the thing, like what you just said, if it's all very privatized, I think it's an important note because it's like we mentioned earlier, the government tends to be really behind on how advanced technology can be. So a lot of private companies are doing things like collecting certain data information. And it's so, um, they're so smart, these guys. Like a lot of these guys are like Silicon Valley tech experts. And unless you have these people in government, the moral debate of to what extent can our privacy online be protected is there'll always be a gap like there's always going to be a time where we might not be protected Mm -hmm. on a personal note how much do you care about your privacy online it's a good question and it's something that i kind of changed my mind about a fair bit because on the one hand i don't do anything um that i shouldn't do online wink wink No, (laughs) (laughs) no but like look i guess i guess for me look i am not um you know i'm not active in any groups I'm not really, like most of my activity is messaging friends. Yeah. Uh, You know, in fact, it's either that or it's watching stuff. It's reading the news. Like I'm not contributing to anything where I'm, you know, I I don't do journalism or anything like that. This is about as much as I, you know, speak publicly. (laughs) Yeah. So for me, I don't feel like I'm putting anything out there that could be used against me. Um, That being said, you know, I, I know a lot of people that do blog or do have political, you know, journals or whatever it is or even stuff that isn't political, even stuff that isn't controversial or divisive or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, what would they feel if their speech started to be limited? What would they feel if somebody pulled them up for something that they said? You know, equally, you know, the, how many times do um, you hear these stories about people that have posted something on their Instagram or their Facebook and their work has found out about yeah. it and that's impacted it? So again, it's not just governments that you have to be careful of, it's what are you putting out there and how are the companies that you're trying to work for or trying to get hired from? Um, what you know? Do we want them to be able to see this? And I guess the answer is don't put stupid shit online. Like, I know, I know, but this is a real, this is a real debate because if you didn't know, this is a real debate because- This one in particular. This one is a real one. So, so but let, me, let me just explain what I mean by that. Okay. So, right. The way that all of the content has evolved is that if you look what Facebook was formed in maybe 2004, 
people started to use it like more widely 2006 2007 and things have gotten progressively progressively you know more intense where every year there's an exponential increase in the amount of content that is created there's more people using it people are posting more there's more avenues and there's more things that you can do and then all of a sudden people have started to find ways to check in on that and to understand what it is so now you see all these people getting in trouble for stuff that they've posted all this time ago you know oh a tweet that so and so did back in 2010 or whatever uh, and that can have career damaging effects but really it's you know it's a case of there are ways to make what you're putting out there private do it as soon as you can cleanse your social channels because you know is it a good thing that they're they're able to watch us or not like you know it kind of doesn't matter the fact is that they're able to yeah so but that's kind of a different thing like that's to do with um kind of cancel culture correct me if i'm wrong but that's to do with you know to what extent do you have free speech online and your the companies that you work for how much can they police what you're saying but in t are you talking about in terms of your because i think people know that if they write something online and it's not necessarily it, like they know when they write something and they post something it's public everyone can see it and i think this is more towards what people what the government or people um maybe even private organizations are seeing you do what you think is private well this is it right it's that you might think you've done a private facebook post to your you know hundreds of right. you know hundreds of friends or whatever yeah so it's kind of private but yeah. also kind of not yeah true but then also do you okay I don't, how many maybe don't know how many friends roughly do you have on facebook probably 700 friends right so yeah. like <laughs> how many people of those 700 do you speak to you know once a month you know? probably five exactly and you know like 20 percent of that is here right yeah <laughs> so it's like yeah. right so but like, okay so say you've got 700 friends on facebook you're very friendly with five of them you would say that you maybe know you know another hundred so that could be family it could be people that you've gone to uni with or school with people that you would stop and speak to in the street that's 105 out of 700 so you've still got like a huge amount of people that maybe you've met at a party maybe you've whatever you don't, you don't really know who these people are that you're giving access to your life, but you continue to put stuff out there. And so when we're talking about, well, what does it mean in terms of surveillance and companies looking at who are you and what you're doing? There's so many avenues for them to find that out, because even if you think that something you're doing is private, it's really not. It's like, you know, it's something that you're giving a huge amount of basically strangers the ability to see and understand. And taking that a step further, because I, I kind of agree with you, I kind of disagree with you, because whilst you're right, it's strangers looking at my information. I have accepted their friend requests because obviously they've asked to be my friend. No, I have accepted their friend so requests. Popular. Or I've asked, you know, to be their friends and there was a moment in my life that I was like, okay, cool, I'm happy with you seeing my post on anti-Semitism or whatever it is, like whatever I think that is private that I'm sharing. But the thing that I think takes it a step further is like when you go onto the street and you're just walking to the bus and CCTV cameras pick you up and you'll think you're having a moment of privacy or you leave your phone at home because you want to be alone. And yet actually people are aware of where you're going or what you're buying or when you do contactless, what you're spending. I think that's more of an invasion than um, people seeing the stuff that I'm posting. However, I agree with you that if people outside of my friends can see that stuff, that's an invasion. And there have been, I think in cases, I can't remember if this was Cambridge Analytica, but there are some, you know, Facebook quizzes that you agree that you want to do, you sign up to, and you don't realize that you're giving access to, or you're giving them access mm. to all your data and all your friends' data. But then also it's even creepier. It's like, if you've got that Facebook page open and you're on Google Chrome or something like that, it's every other thing that you look on, they can see. Yeah. Um, 
tell you it's kind of it's kind of a bit of a sidestep but one um, one scam that i heard is have you ever seen these pictures on facebook which is uh, like a nice picture of an animal or something comment the name of your first pet or something oh like yeah that. and then they'll literally you know how stupid are these people it's like <laughs> obviously that's like one of the main um mm. banking questions or stuff like mm. that and it's like there's so but like look there's so many people that are using the information that you've got so it doesn't have to surveillance doesn't have to be this big sinister you know big brother government yeah. state thing it's a case of we're creating more information about ourselves than ever before because you know there's more tangible things that we use to define us there's more contact that we have with computers we're putting more of ourselves out there and people are preying on that people are thinking how can i harvest as much information as people as possible yeah to and use it against them and people do use it against us like you saw it in the um in the elections with cambridge analytica and you saw it even with brexit and you know even with shopping like people do and that data is invaluable because it changes and shapes human nature mm. um in like throughout history but yeah i don't know it's very it's a crazy debate and it's never ending because even in terms of in the uk like co-op you know the mm. cooperative um coop. they're trying to coop they they have facial recognition cameras in 18 of their stores now um it, people can use it against in like uh potential demonstrations um let me see. Oh, one thing that's crazy, and we'll wrap this up soon, but one thing that is um, wild is, going back to the thing about China quickly, is that they are, uh, let me see, school. They are, um, so they're to do with artificial intelligence, because talking about the future and where surveillance and CCTV and mainly artificial intelligence and machine learning, where is that going to go? There is this guy, I, can't, I don't know, his name is Yi, and he talked to someone from the Atlantic about artificial's potential misuses, and he mentioned a project developed, deployed, sorry, to a select group of Chinese schools where facial recognition was used to track not just student attendance, but also whether individual students were paying attention. Like, it, and it's just like, where is he? And they're actually making, um, let me read this out, they're making brain-computer interfaces that go well beyond just autofill and that allow you to type just by thinking. Yeah, it's all very Black Mirror. And again, it's like you say, <laughs> is where does it end? It's like, yeah, it's very difficult. And, you know, once you give people that kind of access into, you know, your thoughts or mm -hmm. essentially allow that kind of part of you to be monitored there's not well nothing else is private is it no and a couple of other interesting things san francisco have completely banned the police using facial recognition cameras mm -hmm. which what? i thought was interesting do you know why uh, i guess just an invasion of privacy and um kind of like a moral argument i guess and also another thing relating to covid and increase of surveillance so um in the early stages of covid france i think was like really bullheaded about making people stay inside and they use drones for the purpose of monitoring people during the pandemic and also law enforcement as a generic monitoring tool and um since then the drone cameras now i think have been banned yeah um and they also apparently had these like drones and helicopters that would project you know voices and be like stay inside so intense so intense but so they've been banned and i think you know some people are aware of it and there are organizations like big brother watch and hopefully it's not going to get too hopefully human beings artificial intelligence cctv can like progress harmoniously towards something a better future i just feel really fucking bad for people who are in countries where they they are repressed by the government and they want to yeah get rid of them
I mean, there are no really words like for me to say, but what I'm going to do is for the Uyghurs, if anybody wants to um, kind of find out how they can help in some way, I put it on Instagram asking people. We'll put a link in the... Uh, I'll put a link in, in the, the description <laughs> and uh, about how they can potentially help. I know there are a few human rights organizations that people can get involved with. And also I want to wrap this up. Um is I was asking people some questions. So it has been estimated that the law is at least five years behind developing technology. Apparently 62% of people on my insert knew that. Or said they did. Or said that they did, exactly. Did you know, um, yeah, apparently most people said they knew that with uh, COVID there has been a rise in surveillance. Do you agree with government surveillance? 64% of people said no. Do you think security cameras are an invasion of privacy? 50% said yes, 50% said no. That's interesting, that's bang on in the Middle. yeah What's do you do you take any measures to minimize how much you're potentially surveilled also 50 percent bang on yes no is your privacy important to you 73 percent of people said yes um, it's crazy that 20 um 27 people said no like yeah i'd be interested to know like what what do you mean or did you just not care because it's like that's quite it's quite a big thing right to, like, to say to say that i don't care about my own privacy it's weird like i like that's just something that i would always consider to be like a no-brainer obviously you know, something that's important, but... I don't know. I don't... I personally... And I say this with such... Are you such, a 27%? I, I say it with such liberty of being a white person from the UK. I don't really mind because I have nothing to fear. I know that if, if the police tracked me and thought that I was a cr criminal, I have the resources to prove that I'm not. You know, like, I'm in a safe position. But if I was somebody who wasn't as fortunate as having the, you know, life that I live, I would probably be much more, um, like, mm. caring about that. Fair. And maybe it's my own naivete. That means I just, uh, I don't... I, maybe in the future I will care more. But right now I'm kind of okay with it. Yeah. Well, there's nothing we can do about being watched anyway, is there? No. And I think making a podcast doesn't really help. <laughs> it doesn't help at all. Um, all right, well, I think we're going to wrap this up there. Well, thank you, as always, for having me on. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for coming on. Uh... So that was, I'd be interested to know what you guys thought about that debate because there was a lot to unpack, lots of different layers to it and often picking these topics for debates no matter how much research you do, you're only ever going to have a surface level view on it because um, there's just so much history and information that goes into it. So if you have any thoughts, comments, any information that you think I missed out or that you just want to chat about, hit me up on Instagram and I will see you guys next week.